These are the Psy War Soldiers. Hey, it's Jose Galison. You're watching No Way Jose. You can find me on the No Way Jose YouTube channel, all the major auto podcasters and Odyssey as well. Uh, you guys just saw that intro. That's thanks to Jinx. And uh, this is kind of serendipitous because on this episode, this is very fitting that we did that intro. Although we've been using that intro a lot. Uh, but yeah, this is the, for one, I've said many times that uh, that specific edit is what kind of sucked me into this story. Uh, I mean, I kind of known stuff about OKC before, but this is what really dragged me into it. And that we are going to be covering Yiki finally in this episode where this is the seventh part of the series. So we're finally covering that. So, I mean, anyone knows, uh, has been following the series, knows my guest today is Richard Booth. I do want to let you guys know uh, for my patrons, I am sorry, but due to the hurricane stuff and what's going on, uh, it's kind of really screwing me up. So this is not going to be a paid wall, paywall type thing. So this is just going straight out. Uh, and, uh, you know, hopefully in the next few weeks, I'll be able to get things back up and, you know, you know, get a, get a backlog going again. Uh, this is really throwing me off because I'm almost certainly going to lose power. Uh, we're all hunkered down. We're safe. So don't anybody needs to worry about that. We should be fine. But, uh, yeah, it's probably going to throw things off a little bit in that regards, but you know, uh, but for those who want to be a patron, it's patreon.com. So it's no way Jose 2020, the lowest level is two bucks. The highest level is 20. The 20 is my sponsors. My sponsors is CD McRae of the Whiskey and Tea Podcast. Jeremy, uh, who has an Etsy store at etsy.com slash shop slash Raising Liberty. You can follow him on Twitter at Jeremy Rhymes And Mikel Thorpe of the Expat Money Show. Uh, and then I do want to remind you guys to go check out Top Lobster's stuff at toplobster.com. Use Jose at checkout for 10% off. He has my merch, plenty of other shows merch, and he has other stuff that's not like show merch stuff, just his, his artwork. A lot of good stuff there. I highly suggest going to check that out. With that, let's go ahead and get Richard in here. Hey, Richard. Hey, Jose. How you doing? Good, good. Uh, you know, uh, hurricanes throwing everything off. I'm exhausted. I was uh, exhausted. I was telling you beforehand. Uh, uh, yeah, I've been uh, spending the whole day getting my house and property ready. But uh, I'm, I'm excited for this one. Uh, so I'm, I'm looking forward to covering this. Um, before we get into it, I've been having you do it every episode, just to remind people that you're not just some schmuck. Uh, if you could go ahead and tell them who you are and uh, kind of, you know, why you're you're the person for this series. Absolutely. So depending on who you ask, I, I might be just some schmuck, but um, not to toot my own horn here, but I have done a lot of work on the case. And basically, uh, my whole thing is gathering documents, primary material, 
uh, newspaper clippings, FBI documents, ATF documents, all of the material, a person who is writing a study, a dissertation, a thesis, someone who is serious, who wants to look at primary source materials. So I spent several years gathering that information from major researchers on the case, uh, Roger Charles, Jesse Trinidou, Wendy Painting, and uh, through my own uh, research endeavors. And then when I had a really good archive of that, I donated that to uh, who I thought was the most even-handed and best um, best person online to cover this case without any kind of kook BS. And that was Scott Horton at the Libertarian Institute. What I'd noticed is that I'd been listening to him for a decade and I noticed he always would cover Oklahoma City. And when I tune in, I'd also notice that he was always the best on the case. He was well read, he knew the material, and he treated it fairly, and he didn't accept every little thing he heard. So what I did is I reached out to Scott and he offered to host all of the material I have on the Libertarian Institute, which people can find there now at libertarianinstitute.org slash OKC. And so that's kind of my thing is getting material out there. And I do also occasionally write about the subject um, essays you can find in uh, Garrison magazine. And sometimes I'll repost them on Medium and uh, people can find me on Twitter as well. Hell yeah. Uh, I, I would like to, I need to talk to Scott to see it. Maybe I'll get this on there. Cause I, I think we have kept to that. Uh, I know you have for sure, but I think we, I, I feel like I've done a decent job of keeping the experiment, the uh, keeping with the sentiment of not going full on kook. I'll bring up the kook stuff, but you know, uh, I, I try to try to be, try to, you know, pro apply proper logic in it. But uh, I, now uh, we're in the part in the series where we're getting into what I call the weird stuff or or and or, you know, stuff that I think this is the kind of stuff that you would tell your normie friends to kind of get them to be like, holy shit, or pull people in. All the stuff we've done before is like, don't get me wrong, a lot of that is holy shit, but it's more like um, it's a whole big grand narrative, different characters. It can get for a normal person. It can kind of just be like, what the hell? But with a with a normal person, you tell them about this guy, Yiki, and, you know, he's a very... Uh, sympathetic character, especially for you know normal people. He was he's a he's a you know the strapping you know young black cop. Like uh, so, for a lot of people that kind of like tugs at their heartstrings. I know it did for me. Uh, you know, and he was a guy trying to do the right thing. And uh, so these, and then you also have this other chick that we'll be talking about today, Shanti Ferens, who was uh, I think a stripper, who uh, you know she died under very suspicious circumstances. Uh, I mean, I'm not asserting it was uh, you know not suicide. Or whatever, what have you? But you know, it, it was weird for sure, and we'll get into that. I would, uh, I'd be damn near willing to assert with a uh, Yiki, it was not a suicide because that is ridiculous. Uh, it gets past the point of uh, uh, reasonable, uh, you know, being reasonable to assume that he killed himself. And we'll definitely get into that. But uh, I guess let's go ahead and start with uh, Sean Sean T. Farrens. I guess uh, middle name's T, but it's kind of a you know, uh, kind of like a Southern white chick type thing, Shanti. So uh, let, let's go ahead and get into her. I, I know she has a little bit of a connection. It seems like a, there's sort of a connection to something we talked about in the last episode, the uh, Mueller murders, which were gruesome. But uh, I'll, I'll let you have the floor. Uh, you go ahead. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. The Shanti's death is, is interesting. And uh, what it all goes back to, is she was a dancer or stripper, you know, at a place in Tulsa called Lady Godiva's. 
which is a strip joint there. Um, and so basically what happened here is about a week, a uh, little more than a week before the bombing, uh, Timothy McVeigh, Andy Strassmeyer, and we think based upon witness identifications, Andy Strassmeyer's roommate, Michael Brescia, this member of the Aryan Republican Army, uh, visited uh, Lady Godiva. So they visited the strip club. And some of the best evidence that we have of this is something that is relatively shocking, and that's a videotape. There was a video recording in the dancer's prep room at Lady Godiva's, and the owner had put that in there to cut down on theft, you know, between the various dancers, thefts and illegal things and that kind of thing. And so he was reviewing the uh, tape and he because uh, there was a fight that had happened there in the room and he was reviewing it for the purposes of seeing what happened with this fight when he noticed a very interesting conversation on april 8th and what this conversation was is one of the servers at the club uh, went back into the uh, the prep room and this is an audio and video recording, so you can hear everything she's saying. And she's talking to another dancer. And what she says is she had an unusual customer out there and that he was sort of bragging to her in a strange way. Uh, evidently, what happened here is uh, McVeigh told her, I'm a very smart man. And on April 19th, 1995, you'll remember me for the rest of your life. That's exactly what she told the dancer. And this video was aired on the Canadian version of 60 Minutes. They have a program called The Fifth Estate. It was aired on The Fifth Estate nationally. And it was written about in the McCurtain Gazette by J.D. Cash. And what we know is that McVeigh and Strassmeyer were identified by employees at this club. So the owner of the club is a guy named Floyd Radcliffe. And what he did is when he reviewed this videotape, he knew immediately based on the date and what this dancer was saying that this may relate to the Oklahoma City bombing. And so immediately he made a copy of that tape before he called the FBI, which is very smart for Floyd Radcliffe to have done. Because what happened is, is when the FBI showed up, of course, they confiscated that tape and he never did get it back, but he did make a copy and he uh, gave a copy of that to a news team who came to check it out. And he gave a copy to J.D. Cash and, of course, uh, the Fifth Estate and various people who worked at this club were interviewed by the FBI. I do have the 302 reports. In those 302 reports, we know that there was a rider truck parked in the parking lot of the club that night. And uh, that's interesting because of the date. Uh, the rider truck, the bomb truck, was rented on April 17th. And this was April 8th. Uh, but for those students of this case who get into the nitty gritty and start looking at the details and the reports and all of the, ca the uh, uh, case evidence, they will see that there was a second truck uh, that was seen in Kansas between uh, April 
uh, 7th and the 14th. They had a smaller truck that was identified by multiple witnesses. And what we think happened there is that the truck was deemed to be too small for the bomb and they were going to the build in it. So they had to get a bigger truck. And so ultimately uh, at the club that night, there was this smaller faded yellow rider truck and these dancers, multiple dancers identified McVeigh and Strassmeyer out of a photo spread. They were shown a spread of photos of different people and they did pick out Andy Strassmeyer, the owner of the club, his wife, uh, she attested to this on video saying they did all identify that gentleman Strassmeyer. And one of the things that made it easy for them to identify him is that, you know, he had a German accent and his appearance uh, kind of a dour person, and he has kind of a prominent uh, front teeth, which they they picked that out right away. Um, now, for his part, Andy Strassmeyer does deny that he was ever at Lady Godiva's with Timothy McVeigh. Uh, however, we do have some other uh, evidence that uh, su supports the, the fact that they were there. And that is uh, Dennis Mahon a white supremacist figure out of Tulsa, Oklahoma. He lived in the same city as Lady Godiva's in Tulsa and stayed at Elohim City where he had a trailer. Uh, he uh, received several phone calls that night and he attested to this on video in a John Ronson production where he said that uh, the boys, he called them the boys and he's talking about Andy Strassmeyer and, and uh, Mike Brescia and Tim McVeigh. He says they called him two or three times that night asking him to come out to Lady Godiva's and he declined to go. Uh, but he said that, you know, he did get phone calls from them. So we've got, you know, we've got uh, Mahon talking about this and we have the dancers and the employees confirming that it was them. And we have the videotape uh, where the lady's talking about uh, McVeigh bragging about how she, she'll uh, remember him for the rest of, uh, or for the rest of uh, her life, uh, on April 19th. And so one thing that's interesting too to note about this encounter that's often used to kind of debunk it is the fact that Timothy McVeigh was checked into a motel in Kansas, a place called the Imperial Motel. And he was in there for about two weeks. Now the first week that he was there, his behavior at the motel was his normal behavior, which if you look at Timothy McVeigh's normal behavior when he stays at these motels on the gun show circuit, is he makes a great deal of phone calls every day back then before having a cell phone, before you know, lap, no laptop or anything. So you're talking to people on the phone and his phone card records show that he's constantly making phone calls to racist organizations like the National Alliance, um, just dozens of calls in a row all the time. That's how he's entertaining himself and, and, and socializing during the day, talking to these people on the phone. So his first week there, the phone call records show his normal pattern of behavior. And then for the second week when he was supposedly there, a couple things happened. Firstly, uh, the second week stay is paid for uh, at the front desk of the hotel by someone who is not Timothy McVeigh. We know this because the records from the motel have, are in the evidence and there's a receipt in those records which has handwriting on it that is not Timothy McVeigh's. Now, my research, researchers here believe that uh, we think that Michael Fortier or Lori Fortier, who lived in Kingman, went to the motel and they uh, extended his stay for another week there for him. 
And what we believe is that he was putting himself at the Imperial Motel on paper. Okay, and the second thing that happened is the phone calls that he normally makes on his phone card ceased. Okay, they stopped. And this indicates that he is not in that room any longer. In addition to that, we also have the employees at the motel uh, saying that he did not use any towels that week, did not have any um, any room service, it, nothing, nothing was going on. So they don't see him not using towels, not making the phone calls, handwriting on the extension is not his. And so Wendy Painting writes about this in her book and Roger Charles also writes about this in his book. And in both of their books, they both make the argument that Tim McVeigh was elsewhere during that second week. And that happens to be the time frame in which we believe he traveled to Elohim City and he picked up Andy Strassmeyer and his roommate, Mike Brescia, and went to Lady Godiva's. And these witnesses at Lady Godiva's not only identified McVeigh and Strassmeyer, but a couple of them identified the third individual as being Mike Brescia. And they said that he was the guy who was being the most uh, uh, extroverted and, and talking to all the, the dancers the most. They also identified him and perhaps reason had reason to notice him more than the other two because he, he had kind of a bit more outgoing swagger. McVeigh was kind of known as the Virgin McVeigh, not the kind of guy who is laid back and really easy going when he's around strippers. But this other guy had no issues and he's talking to all of them. And he also has wads of $100 bills, right? Now, this is a guy who robs banks. And so he has a lot of cash on him at all times. They identified this third gentleman as a guy who was paying for all the drinks that night. Okay. And he was the one that they identified from photos as Michael Brescia. So the way that we want to tie this, I guess, in some way, or, or some people could tie it to the Mueller murders, is if you recall in the last episode when we talked about the Mueller's, there was that DOJ study of Chevy Kehoe and the Mueller murders. And in that DOJ study, it had said that Kehoe is contracted to murder the Mueller family because are contracted by uh, Andy Strassmeyer and Mike Brescia. Now, these are the same two people that were with McVeigh at the strip club. And so where Shantae comes into this is she's one of the dancers uh, who was talking to the group that night and was interacting with the trio. And I think that if Tim McVeigh was saying things like, you're going to remember me for the rest of your life on April 19th, uh, there's a good chance he might have said, a little more than that, or may have repeated that to some of the other dancers, especially if he was drinking that night. So there's this possibility that he may have said uh, a bit to her. Uh, what we can say for sure is that she's one of the dancers who interacted with the group that night. Now, after this occurred and after it had appeared in the McCurtain Gazette uh, that McVeigh, Brescia, and Strasmere were together at Lady Godiva's. She was found dead in her apartment. Um, it, that was ruled, I believe, a drug overdose, okay, which strippers, some of them, you know, they lead kind of a fast life. That's not uncommon for that kind of thing. Um, one thing, though, that I have heard, which I have not confirmed, and so I can't say with this with much certainty, is supposedly there was a bloody handprint found in her apartment. 
this though comes from a source that is one that I would insist upon secondary sources to kind of back it up or confirm it. So it's definitely a suspicious death. Um, but it's unlike Terry Yakey, that's one where I can look at the crime scene and I know for an absolute fact that he was murdered. Mm -hmm. And so in uh, the case of Shantae, you can say it was um, suspicious. Um, there were two figures connected to it who we strongly suspect were involved with murdering a witness. And that raises red flags. I believe it makes it an area that's ripe for more investigation. And I believe that uh, absolutely Tim McVeigh, Andy Strassmeyer, and Michael Brescia were together on April 7th. They were together just weeks before the Oklahoma City bombing. And in that uh, context, we have McVeigh talking about the bombing. And I believe if he's talking about this to dancers that he doesn't even know, there's a good chance he's going to be talking about it with people that he's there at the club with that night, you know, lending me to conclude that he certainly talked about it with Andy Strassmeyer, which of course I think he planned it with Strassmeyer. And I also believe that Mike Brescia was an accomplice in this case. And so I think of course he did talk about it with him too. And that ultimately in a nutshell, that's Sean Tay's story and the story of the Lady Godiva's. Yeah, it, it definitely is uh, worth pointing out. I mean, anyone who's been paying attention to this series, I mean, if this is your first time popping in, it may not be as evident to you. But one of the big things about the Oklahoma City bombing thing was it was supposed to be literally just uh, McVeigh and then Nichols sort of, you know, to some sort of uh, assistant type of uh, role. Um, and But uh, we've I feel like we've pretty much damn near conclusively shown that that's definitely not the case. And you know, you have figures like Strassmeyer, Brescia, plenty of other people that we've covered. Uh, and this, I mean, if you were trying to clean up the narrative, this would be definitely one of those things where, hey, this needs to be taken care of. Uh, also, it's, it's you know, with the heroin thing, like, yeah, it totally could have just been she died from heroin just, you know, on her own, you know, whether it was accidental or purposeful. But it's also a well-known fed tactic for those who go down this, this rabbit hole for especially individuals who have a past of drug use. I think they even call it hot shot is what they'll call it. Mm -hmm. is, uh, well, they will intentionally, uh, you know, give them a, a dose that will kill them. So it's not that crazy. I'm not saying it's for sure. I mean, that's kind of the whole purpose of the feds doing that because it is not for sure. There's almost no way to prove it. Um, but yeah. Uh, also, I did think it was kind of interesting. You brought the writer things. I believe we mentioned that one of the earlier ones. That's one of the, uh, the multiple writer type things. Uh, I mean, a lot of people, draw all sorts of conclusions from it. I don't know whether it means it, it could mean one thing or another. I don't know, but it definitely is interesting. Um, I don't know if you paid attention to the times uh, with his hotel stay that you were saying in Kansas mm -hmm. was because my mind immediately went to that. That was maybe some sort of uh, building an alibi. Exactly. Uh, so it w would that have covered it was the, the, the stay did that extend to April 19th, you know, when Oklahoma city bombing occurred? It did not extend to the 19th. Um, this was a, actually a hotel stay in Kingman, Arizona. And it was, um, I want to say, very end of March through the first week, maybe a few days past the 7th in April. But what you're seeing here is if Tim McVeigh is out and he's carrying out actions that are in furtherance of the bombing conspiracy, with others, it would serve him well to put himself on paper 
in an entirely different state than these other people. So later he could say, I don't know what you're talking about. I wasn't with these other people. Look, here, I was at the Imperial Motel. And I believe Roger Charles, a very careful investigator, makes a great case that McVeigh, in fact, was away doing things like that. And Wendy Painting, also an excellent researcher, uh, uncovered from the Jones archives the uh, the the, the uh, sign-in uh, slip for the second week stay, which clearly was not McVeigh's handwriting. So I think we have good evidence, at least I think would point any detective towards the case that he was building a paper trail to put him in one place while he's in another with co-conspirators that he doesn't want identified. Yeah. Uh, another thought, too, I kind of had is uh, one of the big things that, once again, we covered earlier on is there were a lot of discrepancies among the uh, the conspirators of when they were actually going to do it. So, I mean, it could have been a case of it was intended to be a, uh, you know, um, a, an alibi for the actual bombing itself. And then mm -hmm. for some reason, whether, you know, things, you know, plans change and overlooked or what have you. Uh, that is definitely something to take into account, I guess. I have the video right here of the uh, the, the strip club encounter. Uh, this is actually from your channel. So uh, I highly suggest people check out your channel, especially if you're likely going to research. There's a lot of good research uh, uh, resources there. Uh, but I want to play it just to kind of show people the, the, the truth uh, or the that there is receipts. We're not, we're not just talking out our ass here. Uh, Absolutely. Go ahead and play it. All right. Moments later, McVeigh calls Millar's number at Elohim City in search of Andreas Strassmeyer. Although Millar's daughter-in-law later claims that the two men never connected, a few days later, witnesses claim to have seen McVeigh at Lady Godiva's, a Tulsa, Oklahoma strip club, in the company of a man with a dark complexion and another man with a German accent. Two weeks before the bombing, the staff there all recognized Strassmeyer with his buck teeth, his German accent. At one point, however, uh, McVeigh starts bragging about the bombing. And he tells the cocktail waitress, on April the 19th, 1995, you're never going to forget me. She comes out of, the, out of the restaurant into the changing rooms and tells the other girls about it. And that is caught on camera contemporaneously on a videotape. It's very powerful evidence. So here we have the cocktail waitress basically predicting the Oklahoma bombing, having just left a table where Strassmeyer and Tim McVeigh were all sitting together. According to reports, Strassmeyer later denies being at Lady Godiva's with Timothy McVeigh. And yeah, that video you see with in, in the waiting room or the, the prep room, that's the one that was aired on the Fifth Estate. And uh, that was right around the time Shantae was found dead. Oh, uh, let's see. Oh, I think, okay, I don't know if you guys heard that. I had a, the YouTube tab still up and it was playing. <laughs> I think that was just on my end. Uh, collapse experiment, I see you in the chat saying was a second suspect of the club too. I'm all for answering... Uh, answering questions, but I'm not sure what you mean by second suspect. Are you meaning Nichols? I, he's uh, talking or? about, I believe John Doe too, is the narrator oh. in that video said, he says that McVeigh, Strassmeyer, and a dark-skinned individual. 
which leads people to think, oh, he's talking about John Doe too. However, that video um, is not entirely accurate. The individual who is seen with McVeigh and Strassmeyer was not a dark-skinned individual. And what you'll note in that doc, that's from a documentary by MJA Films. And there's kind of a, a cut in it. Um, the, the gentleman who is narrating says, uh, McVeigh uh, and Strassmeyer were all seen together. Now, what I think happened is he probably initially said McVeigh, Strassmeyer, and Brescia were all seen together. Because when that documentary initially was being put together with J.D. Cash, the ARA was a big part of it. But then something happened during the production where there was kind of a fallout. I don't know, the, I'm not privy to the details there, but ultimately all the ARA stuff got cut and they ended up referring to them very basically in the documentary as the bachelors at Elohim City and not naming any of them. And so what I can say from the FBI documents and all of the other materials on this is the people at the club were McVeigh, Strassmeyer, and Brescia. These were the ones who were identified from photo spreads. So John Doe 2, or the so-called dark-skinned or large-billed individual, uh, was not one of the people who was spotted there at the club. And that's a good question. I probably was seeing that or hearing that by the narrator and making the connection. Is Are they talking about suspect number two? Yeah, which uh, brings up another good thing to talk about. I saw, I think, a thread. Uh, you were on some thread. I don't know if it was yours or someone else's recently. I saw on Twitter. And, uh, you know, I guess a lot of people do think Brescia is John Doe, too. And we kind of, uh, you know, dismiss that, you know, a little bit. We kind of, me and you both seem to think most, most likely not. And I still kind of lean towards most likely not. But I, I saw recently you were saying that I guess he's gone back and forth between uh, black hair. His face does kind of fit the profile. And for a white guy, he has a little bit more darker complexion. Uh, and the, the big thing that we kind of, you know, threw it out for was the, his muscle mass. But I guess right. you had said that he is off and on kind of been on steroids and stuff. And I, I've admitted to my audience before that I've, I've used uh, maybe not technically steroids. I've used things like hormone stuff in the past. So, you, I mean, yeah, I guess you could balloon up and go down a lot, but there, there's, there's, it's, it's not magic. The steroids right. aren't magic like people think they are. So, I mean, maybe, uh, maybe cause he did look pretty small. I don't, I don't know if you have any comments on the matter. I do. Yeah. So I have um, a photo from 1997 where the FBI took pictures of his upper body to get uh, tattoos in, in the shot. And I would describe him not as having a large build in that photo. However, I also have more recent photos of Brescia from around 2020 or so. And I would describe him as um, bulky or buff. You know, he does have a bit of a larger upper body. Uh, I wouldn't describe him in that picture is looking like a bodybuilder, but I would say that he had a decent build. And this is in recent photos. And that jibes with this idea that maybe he has kind of gone back and forth in size. Uh, the best I can say, though, is that in 1995, he did have uh, dark hair, very dark hair, almost black. Um, he, I don't think, had a dark skin complexion unless he had some kind of tan um, but I personally do not think he's John Doe too, but I do believe that he was part of the ground crew and was involved in the bombing operation. I do believe that. And, um, I think that there's more to that that we'll eventually perhaps know one day.
Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. I mean, like like I just mentioned a moment ago, because uh, I believe you had found somewhere that he had, you know, admitted to off and on using steroids, and he would get large and then smaller. And like I was getting at, anyone who has, you know, kind of toyed with it, like I guess it's theoretically possible that you could like balloon up, you know, work out just right, get really big, and then I don't know, just go to not working out at all and completely like, you know, reducing your calories to a ridiculous level and getting really skinny. But the way the the pictures I saw from him when he was younger, it was very much like, yeah, he could have he could have spent a month or two or however long of a binge he wanted to do a cycle. Usually people don't cycles when they're doing steroids. I don't know how smart he was about it. Maybe he was doing it for long periods of time. I don't know, but I, I, I am doubtful that he would balloon up to a size that they were kind of implying he would be. I, I think people I agree. You know, yeah, yeah I agree with that. that. Yeah. So um, what, what that comes from is an interview with uh, Roger Charles and Don Thrasher that was with the defense team. And they said in the interview there with Stephen Jones that he had been using steroids. Now, my thoughts are on that. If you got a guy in like 95 and he's using like Decadurabolin or something like that, um, he might get really big. But if he stops using, right, it just turns into fat, right? Mm-hmm. You don't get you don't become a skinny guy again if you're big and buff from the steroids and you stop cycling and stop working out um, unless like you said you're doing major caloric restriction you're just the muscle mass eventually is kind of going to turn to fat and you're still going to have a bit of a larger body um, so it's I, I don't buy the idea some a guy could go from looking like a bodybuilder to having an average body type and yeah. so I just don't buy that as him being John Doe too with that is the reason. Yeah. So. I, ju- I also just, I don't understand the concept that someone who would use steroids to get big would then go off cycle and just not give a shit anymore. It, it doesn't right. make any sense. Uh, right. I mean, sure it's possible, but even then it was still is like, I mean, yes, when you come off cycle from doing something like that, there is, you are reducing, you are going to get, I guess, sort of smaller, not as big, but we're talking like, maybe 10 pounds it, it's not like anything insane and anything it'd be more of just a definition matter like you said it would just be you you wouldn't get skinny all of a sudden so yeah it, it, it doesn't jive with me although i will say if you look at him from mo- the pictures from modern day he is he's kind of built like me anyone who's seen me in yeah. person or seen me he's very much like a buff dad bod is what i'd call it like he's big but he's not like ripped or anything and i, I could see if he did if this had happened today with the build he has now and he had jet black hair I could see it, you know, sure. I, I, but, you know, based on the previous ones, no. Uh, I mean, I think John Doe, too, is likely someone we probably haven't even hasn't even been mentioned or maybe a minor character that no one paid attention to in this whole thing. I, I'm not sure. Uh, but yeah, uh, with that, I guess let's go ahead and get into Yiki. I do want to say beforehand, I think Yiki and Trenadu, uh, Kenneth Trenadu, um, I think these are two of the best uh, examples to give to people if you want to talk about it, especially if people are like clearly were, was not suicide or what have you. Both of them, in my opinion, were very clear they were murdered. Uh, I mean, maybe you could make a better case for Kenneth not being murdered, but even then I feel like you're going to being in a ridiculous territory personally. But uh, I will say, I think, Yiki is a better one personally, just because he is a more sympathetic character. Don't get me wrong, I do feel for Kenneth as well, but he was literally in prison and he'd been a guy who'd been in prison multiple times and stuff like that. So it is like it's not as much of a sympathetic character, uh, you know, to to provide to people. Uh, but yes, yeah, somebody like Yiki, uh, who was you know a you know literally the proverbial good cop, um, is uh, 
you know, which is, makes it kind of ironic what happened to him. Uh, I do think this is the best example. And, you know, uh, and I think this is one you can use to talk to people about this and kind of open their eyes. Uh, but I, I guess we'll go ahead and start. We'll start wherever you want. Cause this, uh, the can the Yiki one is like a, the, this is, this is the reason why it's one of the best ones is there's so much to it, but I, I'll let you go where you want with it, I guess. All right. So yeah, there is a lot to it. And uh, there are some details of this that I just don't have memorized. So what I wanted to do here is um, I want to start out by telling people some great sources they can use. If what they hear is interesting to them, they should check out um, an article written by David Hoffman. It was published on April 21st, 1997 in Washington Weekly called The Death of Terence Yeeke. That's by David Hoffman. You can find that on the Libertarian Institute archives. That's the one you sent me, right? Yes. I will say real quick, that is, I've done a lot of digging on Yeeke. I'm sure you've probably done more than me, but I've done a lot, especially much more than the average bear. And uh, that was hands down the most informative, uh, best, uh, you know, account of all of that, that I've ever seen. Uh, there's a lot of stuff in there that you will not get elsewhere. That is the stuff that's pertinent, not just like shit. That's just kind of like, you know, extraneous info. There's a lot of good stuff in that. I highly suggest it. If you don't mind when we're done, just send me the link and I'll put it in the description because, uh, you know, cause I do think people should check that out. Cause, uh, I mean, whatever we do here, I think is not going to do justice to that article. Cause that article is great personally, but go on. Right. Absolutely. It was fantastic. And he also sources it. He's got some pretty good footnotes in it. Another thing, too, is if you watch a documentary called A Noble Lie, there's a very good segment on there about Terry Yiki. So before we go into Terry Yiki, there's one thing I'd like to mention, and that's uh, the whole thin blue line thing. Um, for your audience, they might, some of them might not be familiar with a man named Frank Serpico. And Frank Serpico was a police officer. He was a New York City police officer. And he was a guy who, for him, um, ethics and morality and doing the right thing was the most important. And he refused to take bribes. He refused to deal drugs. He refused to look the other way when other police officers did things like that. And so he came up against the thin blue line. And what happens with that is when you do that, quickly you've got a target on your back. And all of these cops who are largely bullies with badges immediately uh, put you on their shit list. And Frank Serpico had to become like a protected whistleblower because he was seeing things or quite frankly crimes going on. And he was a well-respected homicide detective. And that's what happens when police officers do that, when police officers who have uh, morals and integrity um, don't go along to get along when it comes to cops because it very much is a club and your job as a police officer is to protect all of the other officers by lying for them and by uh, covering up and going along with their crimes and uh, you know lying about things and you know you see them shoot and kill somebody you make up a story and say the guy had a gun because that's how they all do it you know with one another they're just bullies with badges well terry Yiki was not a guy like that terry Yiki was a police officer who was about a seven-year veteran um, in the oklahoma city police force and he was a guy who believed in doing what's right he was kind of a boy scout type archetype he was just 
a good, he's what I would call a stand-up guy, right? And so he's on the Oklahoma City uh, Police Department for about seven years. And he was a couple blocks away from the Murrah building when the bombing happened. And he immediately uh, responded. In fact, was the first responding uh, police officer on the bombing scene. And he immediately began rendering assistance where he saved uh, at least four people from the rubble of the bombing. One of the things that Terry Yiki happened to see because he arrived within minutes of the blast is he saw that there were federal agents in raid jackets. And these are the types of jackets, like an ATF jacket that says in big bold letters in the back ATF. Now, normal ATF agents, they look like drug dealers. They look like drug people because they work undercover. They don't wear a jacket that says ATF on the back unless they're at a raid so they can be easily identified as law enforcement. Well, Terry noticed this, and he noticed that there were these guys in raid jackets. He also noticed that there were feds already there when he got there, and some of them in full riot gear. And Terry, being a smart guy, is wondering why, within minutes of the blast, we have agents in raid jackets and full riot gear already on site. That bothered him a great deal. And so he goes and he starts rescuing these people, and he is essentially recognized as like a hero, I guess you would say. He he probably would be the type of guy to say, no, I'm just doing what's doing the right thing. I believe he actually did at some point. In his he did, work. yeah. He didn't like this label of, of being a hero because he. Um, one thing that bothered him is that there were people who had absolutely nothing to do with rescue efforts who were being put in that same category and were being called heroes and were going to get commendations. And he felt that it was highly inappropriate. He didn't like this idea that these uh, uh, thin blue line type uh, uh, cops uh, who are going along to get along and who are liars and who are going along with a cover up or being honored as heroes. You know, and one of those was a, an ATF agent named Luke Franey. And uh, Terry Yiki called him out and said in a letter to one of his friends, Ramona, that I couldn't believe this guy. Luke Franey was being called a hero and, and being and it was being said that he was inside the building when the bomb went off and that he saved all these people when he knows for a fact that Luke Franey was not in the building and not injured because he saw him there with the other federal agents who were there when he arrived. And so he saw a lot of corruption here that bothered him. Now, in this letter that he wrote to Ramona, his friend, he wrote basically that there were an to his estimation, to his belief, there were federal agents, uh, he said ATF in the letter, that he believed were connected to a sting operation, okay? And he had reason to believe this. He didn't lay it out in the letter what his reason was, but I don't believe he was speculating because of how certain he sounded. Another thing that Terry was doing, he was collecting evidence related to this. And we know this because he was talking to his ex-wife at the time, Tanya, and he was telling her, he said to her and to Ramona, it's not what they're saying it was. It's not what they're saying it was. And he wouldn't go into specifics, but we know from his friends that he was collecting material. One of the things he did is he went to Tanya and he borrowed her VCR 
And back in those days, if you wanted to make a copy of a tape, you had to take one VCR and connect it up to a second VCR. And you'd put the tape in one, and then you would dub it by putting another tape in the other and recording it. So he borrowed Tanya's VCR while he already himself had one. He obviously is wanting to dub tapes. Now, someone I know who did investigate this as part of A Noble Lie, uh, the documentary, told me that and in their investigation, they had reason to believe that Terry Yeeke had gone into the evidence locker at Oklahoma City Police Department and that he had taken, uh, checked out um, some of the video surveillance footage because OKCPD had this footage and seized it and then turned it over to the FBI, but they had their own copies. And what we believe is that Terry had footage of the bombing. And if he did, this would necessarily show the bomb truck being delivered. And I believe it would have shown the truck bomb going off at the same time that it shows the building imploding. And any person viewing that would know that it's not what they're saying it is, because here we are seeing a building collapse at the same time a truck is exploding, indicating there are explosive charges. Now, it's just speculation. That's my personal opinion. It's not something I write about because I can't prove it. Uh, but what we can say is he was collecting evidence. While collecting evidence, he also uh, was getting into a lot of arguments with his real, management. Real quick, I do want to say it also could have shown John Doe too. So that's yes. another big thing. Absolutely. So, it would yeah. show John Doe too getting out of the Ryder truck. Which that's I think right. that there's a lot more credibility to that. Then there is the secondary charges, although sure. I wouldn't be the least bit surprised with the secondary charges because there are there is some light uh, testimonies and evidence that we did cover before. Uh, it may not technically rise to the level of, you know, what some people consider evidence, but there definitely it seemed there were some testimonies of people uh, look, putting putty like stuff in there. Sure. And so that's yeah. true. Well, what we can say is we can prove that there was a John Doe, too, yes. in that truck with him. So we know that for sure. So if he had that tape, he would have that. He would have hardcore evidence of that. And this was at a time when the FBI was saying John Doe 2 doesn't exist. So just covering that there, he was in, in these arguments with his supervisors because he was very upset about the way this investigation was going. He was upset with the cover-up. He was just overall not accepting it. Okay, and that caused him to cross that thin blue line and it made the police officers then view him as an enemy. Okay, so he's no longer in their good graces. They're very angry with him in the days before his death. He, I think, realized this because he was going to his ex-wife, Tanya, and he was trying to get her to sign papers that would uh, there were life insurance for him that would cover him so that if he died, uh, Tanya and his two kids would get an insurance payout. Now in life insurance like this does not cover uh, suicide. And so he, I believe, had reason to believe that his life may have been in danger. Okay, so to get into his death, what happened here is just three days before he was to receive and Oklahoma Police Department's Medal of Valor for his activities that day, he was found dead on May 8th of 1996. Okay, he was found uh, dead in a field 
in El Reno, Oklahoma, not too far from the penitentiary there, the, the prison in El Reno. And uh, what happened here is he was found by a, um, you go to my, my notes here, this is where I kind of start to forget some of the details, but a Canadian County deputy sheriff named Mike Ramsey discovered Yiki's abandoned car. It was filled with blood and he immediately called a homicide investigator when he found that and he taped off the scene. So this, this investigator believed he was dealing with a homicide straight away. The Oklahoma City Police Department was notified and the, this is interesting, the police, the chief of police, Sam Gonzalez, flew out to El Reno by helicopter. Now, you have to understand that where his body was found, the El Reno police have jurisdiction. Yet we find that the chief of police in Oklahoma City used a helicopter to fly to El Reno, and they took control of the crime scene, okay, away from the El Reno police department. And so it wasn't actually until several hours after the um, vehicle was found uh, that police dogs located Yiki's body in a ditch about a mile and a half away from the car. Now, apparently, based on that crime scene where his body was found, uh, firstly, I'd like to say that no firearm was found uh, there next to the body, which if it were a suicide, obviously it would be right there. So they find Yiki and they find that he has cuts to his wrists, to both his wrists, to his neck and throat. His throat is slit from ear to ear. He had lost approximately two pints of blood. Um, evidently, based on the blood in the vehicle, you could say that he had to have got out of his car, uh, which he remembered enough to lock the doors on his car, uh, locked it up. Uh, walk a mile and a half uh, over rough terrain, uh, crawled over or under a barbed wire fence, uh, waded through a culvert, uh, and then laid down in a ditch and decided at that point, after losing two pints of blood and slashing both his wrists and his neck, evidently decided there and then to shoot himself in the head. Now, I believe that uh, any homicide investigator who finds a body in that condition uh, with that level of brutality d uh, done to it uh, should and normally would rule that a homicide. But the OKCPD, who took over right away, uh, right away ruled it a suicide, uh, though they did not find any suicide note. So it's interesting that they ruled it a suicide uh, when, in fact, there was no evidence to even suggest it was a suicide, which in itself is suspicious, right? You'd rule it a suicide if you have a suicide note, maybe. Uh, but when you've got all this going on with the body, uh, that's not what you do. Yeah. And the so, gunshot, and, uh, real quick, uh, yes. I believe it was at like this type of angle, which that's right. I mean, it's possible, but I mean, if I was going to shoot myself, this is a weird way to do it. Like, that's correct. Know, he's uh, there a big was a, guy, and I can tell you this is already an awkward position for me to even get in, and I'm not as big as Yiki was at all. So I'm sure his arms didn't move quite like that. I mean, and sure this is possible, after but, losing two pints of blood. Are you going to go way up like this? And, you know, it, it defies belief. And you're correct. The, the entry wound was up here at the top of the head and it was at an angle 
coming down and, and exiting, you know, his jaw. So yeah, and definitely and real quick, I do want to add to another interesting point. I remember from uh, specifically that article I hadn't seen elsewhere. I don't remember the term for it, but essentially there's a way you can tell if it's like right here or even like kind of here, you can kind of see, uh, it's not, I don't think it's technically gunshot residue cause that's a, but something along those lines, whereas uh, it wasn't present at all. So it clearly was done from a different, like from further away is what it appears, but exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So what you're finding there is the uh, medical examiner, the person doing the autopsy can tell if the weapon was at close range or up against the head based upon um, there is things you can look at. It has to do with gun. It does, in fact, I think have to do with uh, gunpowder residue and also blood spatter and things like that. So you can tell if it was a point blank contact. And ultimately, the evidence showed that this gunshot wound to his head was from a weapon that had to have been at least several inches away from the head. So we're talking you'd have to hold it up like this, and then you'd have to hold it way out away from your head. It just defies all logic, especially when you consider the wounds to his body. Now, in addition, he also had handcuff marks on his wrists and he had rope burns on his body. And so there's quite enough evidence here to show that there was some sort of torture. Or, mm -hmm. uh, and also uh, he had grass inside of the cut open wounds in his body, which uh, any investigator will tell you would happen if you drag a corpse, if you drag a body that has cuts in it from one place to another, you're gonna get dirt and grass inside the wounds. And so I'm confident in saying he's murdered because that's what all of the forensic evidence shows. This forensic evidence in the case shows that it was a murder, okay? Now there was also no autopsy was done. Um, they did not do a drug test, um, even though there were uh, officers who, by the way, hated Terry Yakey, who were suggesting that he was on drugs and and on that and drunk, uh, with no evidence. Terry didn't even drink out. He didn't drink at all, and so uh, they have no evidence to su suggest that he was drunk and on drugs. Yet they did. Uh, and then to add insult to injury, they did not perform a drug test because they said it costs too much money. So you know, when you have one of your own officers killed, I imagine. For most police officers, if you're part of the thin blue line, they'd be happy to conduct one of these tests for you. But, you know, if you've crossed the thin blue line, you know, fuck you. It doesn't matter. That's how it seems to be. Yeah, I and did so, want to mention, uh, and I don't mean stop me if you're going to get into it, but I, I know from reading the article, which is another thing I've only really found there, is they had, it, there were signs of intense tampering with a car, like they had dug all through it, ripped it apart, uh, you know, at the crime scene, something along, along those lines. So it does definitely looks like something conducive with, hey, they got him, probably did some initial damage, probably, you know, um, you know, restrained him, uh, you know, questioned him trying to get documents or what have you uh, and, you know, tore apart his car looking for said documents. And ultimately they end up, you know, moving him to another location. And I, I would assume, you know, if, if I if this was me doing it, like you would move him to a different location. I'm not quite sure exactly where the car was at, but probably a better location to torture someone at. Uh, I mean, I'm not sure how public the initial location was, but you, you'd think you'd want to move them somewhere else. So, Right. What it seems to me like based upon the evidence is that something was done to him elsewhere. His car was nearby, wherever that was. Uh, the body was then put into the car. It was transported to close to where his body was found. It was locked up. The body was dragged and left 
there in this field. It looks to me like he was murdered somewhere else. You're correct about the car. The seats had been completely unbolted. The floorboards had been ripped up. The side panels had been removed. And it looks a lot like whoever did this was looking for something. Now, another interesting note about that vehicle is uh, they did not do, the police did not do a very good job of looking at this crime scene because they returned this vehicle to the family within a day. And it was the family who found a bloody knife in the glove box. Now, can you imagine that? Your family member is brutally murdered. They return to you a car filled with blood and you have to be the one to find a bloody knife that it, that's not put in an evidence bag. That's not found by the cops. Yeah. It was just, um, it was almost intentionally disrespectful. Yeah. Which that was a common theme with uh, the family uh, between his, uh, his mother and sisters and, you know, uh, extended family and his uh, ex-wife, which, they, I guess they were kind of getting a little bit more close is my understanding that I think they he were, was, you know, I don't know if they were talking about maybe rekindling things, but he was definitely in, very involved in their life and they were friendly because they did try to position this as if it was some sort of a relationship type thing that, you know, drugs, alcohol, something along those lines, which they, they do point to that he had some sort of episode in a day or so prior but, a year, uh, actually. Oh, was it a year prior? Okay, but a year uh, prior. Yeah, because it, well, I'm referring to the uh, the uh, sickle cell uh, episode he had because a lot. Of oh, people, right, right, yeah. yeah, yeah, you're correct. Yes, yeah, he did. Yeah, because I mean, he did have some, I guess, you know, sort of domestic stuff. I, I think they just, you know, you know, couples issues before. I'm not sure the extent of it. You know, his seems his ex-wife. I don't think she ever he she ever implied he put a hand on her or anything, but things got heated at some point as things do in relationships. And that seemed to be the thing they pointed to. But they were at a good spot at this point, supposedly. It looks like he was very much interested in his being with his family and, you know, working things out. Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, people have passed. Uh, I, I mean, I don't know much about the specifics of that, but that is what people point to a lot is this relationship type stuff and then drugs. But it, it seemed to be uh, that was just the excuse they were going with and playing it up. Um, yeah. That was definitely the excuse they were going for it. I'm glad you mentioned that because there are a couple things about that I'd like to comment on. And uh, one thing we know is they definitely had a very good relationship, he and his ex-wife at the time of the murder, because you have Terry going over to her house frequently and she's there and they're talking. She's doing things like letting him borrow her VCR, talking to him, talking about the kids, you know, things that if you're, if you have a, a hostile kind of thing going on with a partner and you're not talking, you're not going to be going and visiting them and hanging out. You're certainly not going to let them borrow, you know, a VCR or whatever. So it does seem that they were reconciling and the police did try to frame this as, oh, he was just upset because of this meddling wife and our ex-wife and he did this because of her and that it was just was entirely not the case now the police did some interesting things on the day that terry Yiki was found dead before his body was found what happened here is the police went over to his apartment and they got his police cruiser and they brought it back to uh, the police department and I think that jibes with they're looking for something. They went and they, they know that something's going to happen to this guy. He's going to get taken out. They go and they get his cruiser and they bring it back to the police department. 
And they do this hours, hours before the family was notified that he was even missing or that he was found dead. Another thing that happened that day, about 1.30 p.m., the police uh, folks down at the police department called up his ex-wife, Tanya Yiki, and they uh, they asked her to come downtown and to file a uh, uh, violation of a protection order, which like a year and a half before there was a protection order because they were in a dispute. Real this, quick, this was before, maybe you're about to say it, but this was before she was even aware of the death, right? Before she was aware, it was at 1.30 p.m. The death, the body was found at like 6 p.m. So body has not even been found yet. And the cops are calling her and telling her to come down to headquarters and we want you to file a violation of the uh, protection order that is no longer even, uh, put it this way, Yiki's at her house the days before he's going over there all the time. He's meeting with her. So she obviously doesn't care that he's around. She's liking, she's seeing him. She's talking to him on the phone. She's hanging out with him in person. So they're calling her up and that's going to come down here. You know, he's who picked him up from the hospital. Sorry to me cut you off, but yes, yes, exactly. And so uh, why are the police wanting her to get something on paper that would create a record that shows that, she is saying that he's violating a protection order. Oh, re- real quick. Sorry. I just want to clarify once to the hospital post, yeah. like right after the Oklahoma City bombing, for those of people who don't understand what I'm saying. Uh, and there's also some intrigue to that, to where I guess he was very much like, I want to get the fuck out of here and said some things along those lines to her. He was very shaken up when he, when she took him initially right after the fact. And uh, yeah, he very much wanted to get out of there and he was definitely implying it was because of, uh, I don't know if maybe, maybe you could say he was worried something could happen to him there, but he was also like, he was having issues with some of the individuals who were coming to talk to him there. Very right. weird, but sorry, go on. No, you're right. It was weird. He did want to get out of there and he, he was saying things like, I'm fine. You know, I'm okay. I don't need to be here. And so, uh, on that, the day his body was found at 6 PM, I just find it very important that these officials at the police department are going and they're confiscating his car. They're trying to get Tanya to come downtown and make these statements, which she refused to do, because if she had done that, we would have something in the record that would be very, very helpful for the police to say, oh, look, he was despondent. Look at this. He can't talk to his wife or see his kids because of this. And it would have played perfectly into their narrative. But thankfully, Tanya refused to do that. And when you mentioned... Uh, yeah. You may be able to go do it, but I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like, I don't know if it was a written statement or uh, some sort of recording, but they did try to use something later that she disputed that did not fucking happen whatsoever. Uh, she disputed what now? I, I vaguely remember something, that specific thing, that that they later tried to say that she actually went through with it. And she was like, no, I didn't. Uh, okay. Maybe, maybe, I, maybe I'm recalling incorrectly, but I vaguely remember that article. There was, you know, once again, this article is a treasure trove. There's a lot of stuff that I've not seen mentioned elsewhere. Uh, but yeah, I vaguely remember something, whether it was a written thing or an audio of some sort that they, she found later of them saying she actually followed through with the, uh, um, you know, the, whatever the thing was, the, uh, the not following through with a, him, him breaking his restraining order. Cause they did have a restraining order or something like that. Like a year and a half before there yeah. was. So yeah. I vaguely remember something like that. And she was like, no, I never did that. This That's is bullshit. Correct. And she was very upset about it because 
And that's not the first occasion of stuff like that. I guess you can say it's her word against the cops. Sure. But I mean, when you add up all the other inf information, it gets kind of weird, uh, but sorry. Go no, absolutely right. That's, mm -hmm. and that probably that detail is probably correct. But um, um, some of the things too, that we need to mention about this is the harassment of the family. Okay. And right before, and this was not just after he died. Um, right before he died, they had some strange things happening. Not only, of course, was Yiki being intimidated at work and his supervisors were giving him a hard time, all these things because he kept talking about stuff that was bothering him, which I believe if he's talking about agents, federal agents being involved, he is setting off red uh, or setting off alarm bells for them. They're very worried. So uh, what's happening here is that, for example, uh, right before he died, uh, the couple's Ford Explorer began getting mysterious like flats, flat tires, and she'd roll it into the shop and they'd pull out like six or seven nails. And she said that this happened between eight and ten times to her vehicle. Now that's before the murder. Now additionally, after the murder, uh, her brakes were cut and she did get into an accident because her brakes were completely out. And thankfully she was fine. It was not at a great high rate of speed. She was okay. So you have these things happening and then you also have some more um, real, sorry, I don't mean kicking off, but I, I keep remembering little aspects and I'm trying to, this is just me trying to be actually somewhat fair to the police uh, thing. That way we can show we're showing both sides. I don't know if this is something the police tried to use at some point, but, uh, I guess he had at a previous time and she, uh, confirmed this, uh, he had tampered with her vehicle cause they were trying to imply that he, or maybe, I don't remember if they actually were implying or or what the context was in the situation, but he had at one point, I guess earlier, I'm assuming maybe when they were around the time they were having issues, you know, as a, as a couple, uh, I guess he had disconnected her battery, which I mean, because he was trying to keep her from leaving, which is a right, far so cry they, from cutting someone's brakes. So. Right. And, and this is a, a year and a half before the murder. Um, yes, he had disconnected her battery, but one thing to keep in mind is the brakes being cut was after he was killed. Okay. And this is at the time she's asking the police all these questions about his death. Now her brakes are cut. She almost gets in an accident. Okay. And so obviously that, that can't be Terry. And then uh, prior to the death, um, there was a time in which a bunch of hoses were pulled out of the vehicle. Now this happened at a time when he and Tanya were getting along fine. They were meeting. He was going and hanging out at her place. They were talking on the phone. They were doing good. And so these are things that are happening at a time when they're doing good. However, if you can do things to a vehicle like that, it makes it very easy to later link that back to something that happened a year ago and say, oh, look what Terry did. He disconnected the battery and now he's doing this with the nails and he's doing this with the brakes. And all of it has uh, a distinct uh, taste to it that uh, to me uh, does not add up. And, and I find it to be highly suspicious. And so the family said the way that they were treated was atrocious. Um, the, the family wasn't notified for something like seven, seven hours, you know, after he was killed and his body was found. And uh, they also um, had to pay for his funeral. The police were going to take care of these expenses. And what happened here is the police moved 
to a move move this to a different funeral home to one of their own police used funeral homes and made them take care of it which the family found suspicious they had a funeral home lined up and all of a sudden the okcpd is moving it to their own in-house one and and then uh, bills the family for it and makes them take care of it and so just absolutely horrible um other things happened too like there were break-ins at tanya yiki's uh apartment uh, she had an alarm system and she would come home and find that the alarm system was disabled and that uh, there were things like shelves or cabinets open uh, things that would make it very evident to a person that someone had been there first of all you set your alarm and you leave come back the alarms turned off and your place has been rifled through it's obviously sending a signal that we've been here she even one time got there and found that someone had left a balloon inside the apartment for her and uh that i think disturbed her a great deal and mm -hmm. so there's just this harassment that's going on and this is going on because the family is contacting the police and pressing for an investigation asking questions saying that none of this is right um, they continually were asking for Terry's videotapes, which he, uh, you know, he, he was making copies of these tapes and he had a briefcase too, that he kept a lot of documents in and they were asking for all this stuff. And the police were saying, Oh, I don't know what you're talking about. They would either say one thing. They would say, uh, Oh, we don't have anything. Or on another occasion, they would tell her, Oh, you don't want those tapes. The only thing on there is porn. Um, would you say that? I mean, is that appropriate for a police officer to, to say to someone's dead cop's wife you you would just say well you don't want to look at that you wouldn't denigrate him like that like they did so they obviously were denigrating this guy and they were harassing him and so those are just some of the key details there i would recommend people check out the hoffman article um, you can read the letter that that yiki wrote to his friend ramona where he talks about how there were feds at the scene. You can read all about this harassment uh, mm -hmm. that the family faced. And uh, just uh, look at the, uh, the, the way the body was found. I think that any reasonable person can look at how that body was found and conclude it was a murder and you're not being a crackpot. You're being reasonable. You know, and people don't kill themselves by slitting their wrists and slitting their throat, losing two pints of blood, uh, climbing over barbed wire, uh, walking a mile and a half, and then shooting themselves in the head uh, in a way that, that that no person would would actually do. And then no firearm is located at the scene, not until the Oklahoma City Police Department a chief of police shows up in a helicopter, and now all of a sudden uh, they, they find a, a firearm out there, and it's located after the area has been swept by officers who say that there's no weapon, and this guy shows up, and all of a sudden there's a weapon. And same thing with this weapon. They refuse to turn it over to the family, refuse to do any ballistic tests, so there's questions about the murder weapon. The entire thing, I believe, if any law enforcement officer looked at this, would conclude it was a murder, and I'm, I would stake everything on that. 100%, it was a murder. He was killed. I believe the FBI murdered him. Yeah. Uh, and a little fun fact. Uh, I mean, I guess this doesn't really, you know, isn't really all that like indicative of one way or the other, but I think right before he died, he literally blew off a meeting with a, it was either ATF or the FBI, That's but uh, they were, they were wanting to obviously it seems implying to get him to coax him to kind of 
uh, you know, uh, and once again, I cannot say enough. Check out this article. I'll, I'll put it in. I'll put it in the description as soon as I get a chance after this. Uh, yeah, definitely go check it out because there's so much there. A lot of the stuff we covered, like it's there are multiple examples of, of it. You know, uh, like you know, harassing the family, and then Tanya particularly, she ended up having to move as a result of it, and even then, it still continued. Um, you know, cause she was really the only one that kind of kept pushing it, uh, which is, you know, for those who want to try to imply there was some sort of issue, uh, between them, uh, the fact she became a crusader for him and her, his own family. And I'm not saying this in, in a bad way. I, I believe if I remember correctly, there's some statement from the mother of like, you know, uh, you know, I, we, we were kind of scared and also we just don't see this going anywhere. I, I can see it's reasonable, uh. You know, I'm sure he probably, I don't know what his family was like. There probably were kids and other stuff like that. So, you know, I get it. Uh, so I'm not at all trying to shit on them. But, yeah, with Yeek, Ter uh, Terry, uh, fucking Tanya, she she kept pushing it. And that's why they kept fucking with her. And honestly, I think she's lucky to be, uh, you know, be all right. I mean, if, if it was, the only reason I think that she probably is okay is because the fact that they probably already pushed the bill so far with, Yiki already i think her something happened to her uh that you know unless it was just something really you know if they did pull off a car thing it would have been too suspicious to add to the all the stuff um but yeah um uh do you have anything else to add to the Yiki stuff there's so much but i i can't i don't know what else is really pertinent for them matter right now if there's anything else you can think of uh let me know otherwise it, go ahead I think the the intimidation that they were seeing was pretty much designed to shut them up. Not as you know, like the brakes thing. I don't think it was to to kill her. I th I think that it was designed to scare them, to shut them up, because you did have t um, the ex-wife Tanya uh, pushing it. You had Terry's uh, sister pushing it, and you had Terry's mother pushing it. The whole family, and the only way really to have get them to shut up was with this intense overt harassment and that works you know and it worked in their case and for people interested in tanya there was a radio broadcast you can find it on archive.org i'll send that over to uh, jose so he can post it it's a really good like hour long radio interview with tanya right. and she very much loved terry they were on good terms at the time that this happened. They had reconciled their differences, which are normal for any relationship. You have ups and downs or sometimes when you're split or what have you, it happens. But at the time of the death, they were meeting, they were together, uh, things were fine. And uh, bottom line, look at the crime scene. The man was murdered, obviously. Yeah. Um... All right, I want to bring this up. It's not really pertinent to Yiki, but I thought it was interesting. Uh, this this guy is saying forensic artist Jean Boylan said she and witness De Deborah Nakanashi literally had to ditch FBI agents to complete the John Doe sketch. They were trying to intimidate Nakanashi and sabotage the sketch, which I would say before, before I'm sure you have something to say on the matter, but I, I would say, uh, yeah, obviously, I guess if you're going entirely off the sketch, but there were other uh, accounts uh, that kind of seemed to match up it. So... Uh, maybe well, they made some minor things, but go on. 
No, that's really interesting, actually. I had not heard that about Debbie Nakanashi. That, and I have read and, and documented a great deal about her, so I'd love to hear more about that. If uh, your commenter there has more details, so please send that to me. And it jibes with what I have seen from other Oklahoma City bombing witnesses, is you have uh, witnesses who basically were berated and felt that these agents were being hostile to them. Any witnesses who did see John Doe number two, um, they were told alternatively that they were liars. They were told to stop making up stories. They were pressured to change their story. And so that would absolutely not surprise me based upon the behavior that we saw with these other uh, agents who are interviewing people like Eldon Elliott. He testified under oath that the FBI tried to get him to change his story and he refused to do so. And it just makes you wonder how many witnesses they might have gotten to because some people might be more susceptible to that, um, you know, to be suggest these kinds of suggestions coming at you from the FBI might cause you to, to clam up. Um, but certainly it jibes with the overall pattern we've seen where these uh, witnesses who did see John Doe too were harassed and they were intimidated. Yeah, which to the intimidation, uh, collapse experiment said, didn't Yiki's boss tell him the day before if he continued in, in, uh, investing, investigating, I'm sure he's going to say, he would be a dead man. I vaguely remember that. I don't know the specifics. I don't know if that was in a letter or someone saying that he said it, but it, that definitely, I, I can say with like 99.9% .9 certainty, that was definitely a thing Yiki or, or or it somehow came out one way or another that that was that supposedly. yeah that is that is uh, in there and there's also another it's reminded me um one of the officers who was friends with terry like uh, one of the good officers told tanya uh that he was murdered and, and she said that there were several other officers who she considered to be friends of terry's or good officers who told her the same thing yeah um well i don't know if you have much else to add to this uh, if, if you do, uh, now's the time. Otherwise, we can go ahead and do plugs. And the next episode will probably be the last one, aside from maybe any like additional information. I guess you were saying uh, Jesse has something uh, important coming out here soon, uh, important trial, because it's a big thing. We'll get into that and trying to do one in the next episode, because that'll be the main thing is the next episode. Trying to do, um, you know, Kenneth trying to do his brother, was Jesse trying to do, who's been, you know, probably the biggest crusader for all of this because when his brother died, he took it upon himself to, you know, just really, uh, really dig into this. And he's been doing that for years and has been a godsend for this case in a lot of ways. Uh, but yeah. Um, it, but like I said, if you have anything else, let me know. Um, but uh, you know, otherwise we can start doing plugs. Yeah. So just, best I can say is if you do go to libertarianinstitute.org slash OKC, and search in that search box in the top right for Yeeky, Y-E-A-K-E-Y. You're gonna find the Hoffman article and Wendy Painting also wrote a very good article on this. I recommend checking both of those out. Also check out A Noble Lie for the segment in there about Terry. And I just, I apologize for not having all these details just committed to memory like I do some of the other things on this case. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I did the best I can here. My, my hope is, is that people will be tantalized enough by some of the things we've said here, especially concerning the way the body was found to look into it further. I believe Terry Yiki was a hero. He was a man who stood up for what was right. I believe he was brutally murdered by the feds and I will stand by that. The evidence does show that this is not a man who killed himself. And the only people who would have wanted to murder him would be those people that he was accusing of being involved in the bombing, which were federal agents. And so his blood is on their hands. Mm. And uh, one little factoid I did want to add to it, because uh, I forget the name of the guy, but I believe it was even in that intro 
that uh, that I played. I know it's one of the Jinx intros that has it. There's one guy who you know speaks a lot about this and, and tries to corroborate the the police's case. And he you know he he said he was you know basically like good friends or best friends with mm-hmm. Terrence and uh, you know Terry Tim went- Ramsey. Ramsey yeah, and Detective Molyneux, they both, oh, we, we were ba- great buddies with Terry. No, they hated Terry's guts. Yeah, and, and Tanya, Tanya, t- Tanya talks about that. Yeah, but uh, with that, uh, we are at the end of it. I appreciate your time. It's been a great series so far. I've been getting a lot a lot of good, uh, you know, uh, back on this. For example, Anna, who's always here. Uh, it's my favorite series and all the content in the universe. Uh, I've been really happy this turned out, and I really appreciate your time, uh, Richard. And uh, looking forward to you know we'll finish this up, and then hopefully you know we'll have more information come out as time goes on. Maybe have you come on and do what you know, t- depending on what uh, information comes out, whether it's a small episode or you know huge ones. Hopefully this next uh, Jesse thing you know is a huge drop. That'd be cool. We could have uh, we could you know go over all that. But uh, yeah, um, uh, you know, please share this out, people. Uh, you know, get, get this series going. I do appreciate your support. I think the first episode, uh, you know, and I, I only, I don't even have two thousand, uh, you know, subscribers on my channel. I've it's got three thousand views on YouTube. The second one's got a thousand, and they're just you guys seem to be loving it. Uh, but yeah, please keep sharing around. I do think it's important information. Uh, you know, definitely go check out Richard's YouTube channel, the LibertarianInstitute.org. Uh, you know, check out his, uh, you know, all the stuff there. But yeah, uh, like I said, this is uh, this Jose Galasson. There's no way Jose. Uh, you can find me on YouTube, all the major odd podcasters, Odyssey as well. Uh, if you want to follow me on uh, you know Twitter at Senor Jose 2020, I do have next week uh, on Thursday. Uh, this is another four pony boys. I had Dave Smith in the last one. It'll be Jeremy Kaufman on this one. And then after that, I think a couple weeks later, I have a, another one of those series of Chingo Bling, which a lot of people might know who he is. He's like a MAGA guy. Uh, he's a comedian rapper. He's, he's an interesting fella, but, uh, yeah. Um, I appreciate you guys, you know, checking us out, uh, with that, we are out.